This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. And of course, we're talking about federal politics for our hot question of the day today. The ethics commissioner releasing his report this morning, finding that the prime minister contravened Section 9 of the Conflict of Interest Act. It prohibits public office holders from using their position to seek to influence the decision of another person in order to further their own interests, those of their relatives or friends, or to improperly further the private interests of a third party, in this case, the company SNC-Lavalin. That's the exact wording there of the act that the Prime Minister was found to be on in contravention of. And listen, the Commissioner's office reviewed hundreds of pages of evidence, like we are talking dozens of email exchanges, text messages, telephone conversations, uh, went over the in-person meetings involving SNC-Lavalin ministers, their staff, including the Prime Minister and other officials. The report makes for very interesting reading uh, details and lays out absolutely everything. If you get a chance today, take a look at it. It certainly is fascinating. But I tell you, the one thing that gets me when I read it is just the stupidity. It's beyond me how politicians cannot understand the basics of what to do and what not to do in this day and age just astounds me. And here we have an election coming up. That's part of our hot question of the day today, right? This federal election coming up within the next month or two. We're probably talking in October at this point. So we want to know, as it's confirmed today, the Prime Minister broke ethics rules by trying to exert influence in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. That is according to the ethics commissioner. Will this impact your vote in the upcoming federal election? Yes, because now you're now not going to vote liberal. Uh, no, not going to impact your vote because you're still voting liberal. Or no, you never were voting liberal. Those are the three choices that we have there. So check this out. You'll find it at Sarah 980 on Twitter. You will also find it at CKNW on Twitter. You can email me as well, simi at cknw.com, or leave a message on our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. We have already gotten dozens of votes on this. uh, And I tell you, I'm not going to lie, I am surprised by the results that we are seeing there. Uh, 19% saying they are now not going to vote liberal because this impacts their vote. 41% saying no, they're still voting liberal. And another 41% saying they never were voting liberal. Some very interesting results. So cast your vote there. And remember, we've got lots of reaction coming up to this story. As you've been hearing this morning, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau broke the Federal Conflict of Interest Act by trying to exert influence over former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould. This has, of course, become known as the SNC-Lavalin scandal. This report from today is the Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion and his extensive investigation that looked into the allegations that Prime Minister Trudeau improperly pressured Wilson-Raybould to override the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, let's break into this right now with the help of Amanda Connolly, who is our global news reporter in Ottawa. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. What was it like when this report came down in Ottawa this morning? 
This was certainly surprising. We uh, had not heard in advance it was going to be coming out today. Uh, there was certainly some speculation it might come out later towards the uh, the, the actual kind of start of the campaign itself. Um, but certainly there there is a lot to unpack in this report. It's 64 pages long and lays out really in no uncertain terms that Justin Trudeau did break federal ethics rules by trying to intervene in the decision of Jody Wilson-Raybould not to offer or not to override the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions in the SNC-Lavalin affair. It leaves really very little room for equivocation in the wording of this so far. Yeah. What, what strikes you when you read through this? You're right, like it's extensive. I spent some time reading through it this morning. What really struck you when you looked at it? I think there are a couple of things here. One of the interesting points to note is that Mario Dion, the ethics commissioner, makes it very clear in the report that he was not able to get access to all of the documents that he wanted to do to have this investigation be full and complete. He says that he had asked for cabinet confidences um, to have access to those, to have that, those kind of um, confidentiality rules waived in his case. That request was declined by the new clerk of the Privy Council, and he was not able to get access to anything that happened around the cabinet table. As well, um, we really saw in the report kind of um, a, a cutting to the heart of the issue. We've, we've heard Justin Trudeau kind of repeatedly saying that there was no political direction here, that he at no point directed Jody Wilson-Raybould to take any particular decision in this case, and that because of that, there really there was no... Um, line effectively crossed to the extent that she has been saying a line was crossed. And Mario Dion, of course, in his report here, takes aim directly at that and says that that might be what Trudeau is saying. And even if there was no clear direction given, the amount of pressure that was being put forward here on Jody Wilson-Raybould amounts to effectively tantamount political direction. That Because of that, um, and because it was done for the interest of a third party here, SNC-Lavalin, that that really is the kind of clear violation of the rules. Right. Amanda, did you get the indication as we've been hearing that the, the prime minister, he clearly thought that he this was going to be okay, kept saying that, oh, let's wait for the ethics commissioner report. Let's wait for the report. I think that, I mean, that, that really is kind of an open question at that point. We have certainly heard fairly confident language from the prime minister leading up to this, uh, as well as throughout the SNC-Lavalin affair as it was happening. Um, and of course, the, the report that came out today is, is not... Um, does does not really uh, give kind of a kind perspective to the prime minister on that. It's, it's very clear in its findings of, of wrongful behavior. Um, I think what's interesting as well is that we're we're waiting on this report from Anne McClellan, who was a special advisor Trudeau had appointed uh, himself to look into whether perhaps there might be a way to split the role of attorney general and the minister of justice. He had said uh, earlier this week that he would not release that report until this report from Mario Dion came out. He said that when he got that report from Anne McClellan, the former uh, liberal cabinet minister, former liberal justice minister, that he said it was great. Um, we don't know what that means yet. But of course, now that this right. report is out, we're immediately looking ahead to the next report. Yeah, because clearly in this one, there's no equivocation by the ethics commissioner. Any any attempt he spells out to try to change Jody Wilson-Raybould's mind was improper. Yeah, and, she, and he's saying here, of course, if he finds the tactics that were used by Trudeau and by his officials very troubling, that's his exact quote. I find all of these tactics troubling um, and that there, there were, uh, again, this kind of consistent, uh, repeated efforts to uh, influence her decision to uh, get her to reconsider different aspects of the case. And even if not to direct her to take a certain decision, that, again, the, the, all, the sheer amount of things that were being um, put toward her and the discussions that were taking place were inappropriate. And one thing that he did note that was interesting, I thought, he was saying that in the report that uh, SNC-Lavalin, of course, filed its judicial appeal of the decision not to grant it a deferred prosecution agreement in October. Dion saying that as soon as Trudeau's office knew of, that that 
uh, challenge had been filed, they should have ceased all communications on this matter. And in fact, all the communications with SNC-Lavalin only intensified. Right, because at that point, it should have been a warning to them. This is now before the courts stay away from it, but they, they didn't do that. Has there been any indication, Amanda, that did, did the government, do you think, think that they were past this? Because it's been very quiet on this front in the last couple of months. I'm not sure so much if they think that they're past it, as I'm not entirely um, sure that they think it's resonating with voters as much, perhaps, as other uh, other parties think it might be. We did see, of course, as it was happening, the Liberals took quite a significant hit in the polls. Those have been stabilizing now. We've seen fairly um, the, the kind of support for the Liberals and the Conservatives evening out to a certain extent. Uh, the Liberals perhaps even gaining some momentum here as we head into the end of the summer. And I think the test for this really will be what those polls say as we head into the election campaign. And of course, the biggest um, test of all will be the election itself, whether this is an issue for voters when they actually go to the ballot box and if the conservative messaging around this will actually resonate with them. Right. And so how soon do we expect that? Like we always hear October, October, but do we know definitively how close are we to this election? So the fixed election date right now is October 21st. Um, so far, we've not heard any indications that the government plans to change that. Um, that has been the, the, the consistent messaging that we're hearing so far is it will be October 21st. We're still waiting, of course, for the right to drop. At that point, we will have kind of more official notice of the actual date if there is going to be any changes to that. But as of right now, we're looking at the middle to end of October um, and specifically the 21st. Right. And the prime minister is speaking this morning. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so we're set to hear from him in roughly about the, the next hour or so um, for him. Half hour to hour here. We'll see kind of how the timing goes. But he is scheduled to speak uh, very, very shortly. And it's not about this actual issue. But of course, now that the report is out, all of the yeah. questions are going to be dominated by this issue. Right. And I know that in, in recent days, he's I've seen some reports of like books that he's cooperated on where he's talked about the SNC-Lavalin case. And it, it hasn't sounded like he's changed his mind at all about what he did and whether he thought it was wrong. It really, yeah, you're you're right. It really hasn't, and so this will be very interesting to see yeah. how he responds to such a clear finding of rule breaking by Mario Dion. Because, of course, as you said before, Dion does not uh, does not leave really any room for misinterpretation in his report. So it, we're going to have to watch and see how Trudeau responds to that. But so far, he has been um, not willing to apologize or give, kind of give an indication that there was wrongdoing here. That is so true, Amanda. Thank you for your time on this today. Thank you. That is Amanda Connolly, our global news reporter in Ottawa. He keeps saying he takes responsibility for this. But what I have not yet heard is what he defines as taking responsibility. What does that mean? Does that mean that you fire people? Does that mean that you, you know, censure yourself? Like, you apologize, have not heard an apology either. So we want to run through some of the other comments that we didn't get a chance to hear earlier and kind of sum it all up for you without all the doublespeak in between. So first up, he says he takes responsibility for the mistakes that he made. I recognize uh, that this was a situation that shouldn't have happened. Um, But my desire to protect Canadians and at the same time uh, to protect the integrity and the independence of our uh, judicial institutions uh, remained throughout. We recognize that the way this happened shouldn't have happened. I take responsibility uh, for the mistakes that I made. At the same time, we learned many lessons through that and we're aided and will be aided by the McClellan report, which has been released today. I kept hearing that. Oh, I take responsibility. But what does that mean? What does it mean when you say you take responsibility? Well, he has an interesting answer when he was asked that. Uh, you said 
You've said a couple of times in answer to my colleagues that you take responsibility for what happened in this affair. Um, and I, I harken back to something you wrote on Twitter of all places in 2013 when you said it's hard not to feel disappointed when you're in your government when there is a scandal, new scandal every day. Uh, this particular uh, issue has been before Canadians now for many, many months. Uh, you've come into some intense criticism uh, from the commissioner today. Um, when you say you take responsibility, what does that actually look like in concrete terms? And what do you say to disappointed Canadians uh, who may not want to vote through now based on what they're reading today? Uh, taking responsibility means recognizing that uh, what we did over the past year uh, wasn't good enough. But at the same time, I can't apologize for standing up for Canadian jobs, because that's part of what Canadians expect me to do. They expect me also to stand up for our institutions, and as the Ethics Commissioner pointed out, those two elements came into conflict in an unfortunate way for which I take full responsibility. But more than just taking responsibility for what happened in the past, it means making sure that this mistake never happens again. And that is why months ago, even before today, we asked uh, a panel of experts to submit recommendations on how our government and all future governments will be able to balance and navigate through the very important principles of defending the public interest and respecting and upholding prosecutorial independence and the independence of our judiciary. Uh, those recommendations which are out today uh, are very much things that uh, will allow us to move forward and make right uh, what obviously didn't work uh, over the last year as we tried to balance competing interests and fell short, as the Ethics Commissioner pointed out. I may be slightly speechless, actually, with that response. He says what they did over the last year wasn't good enough. No, that was not the problem. It's that what you were doing wasn't good. Not not good enough. You just should not have been doing what you were doing over the last year. The ethics commissioner clearly spelled that out. And here's the other thing. Uh, how is this not about corporate influence, right? We've heard that over and over and over again. This one company had way too much sway over certain members of his inner circle when clearly they were all working towards trying to make things easier for SNC-Lavalin. So he was also asked the question, how is this not powerful corporate influence? The report today shows that your government changed the criminal code after the SNC-Lavalin heavily lobbied your office and members of your cabinet for a legal escape hatch. How will you convince Canadians that this is not proof of some powerful corporate influence over, over your government? Um, the uh, deferred prosecution agreements uh, are an element that is in place in many, many countries around the world. Uh, most of our uh, most important allies have these. It allows a company that has been found guilty of wrongdoing to pay fines, to make restitution, to fix their behaviors, take responsibility for their behaviors along some very uh, severe and well-established criteria. Uh, this is a measure that many of our allied countries have that Canada did not have in place. Uh, this was something that uh, well before SNC-Lavalin, uh, Canadian governments have looked at and have considered. It was uh, an element lacking within the uh, tools we have at our disposal to ensure proper behavior uh, by corporations and uh, opportunities for jobs and growth in the country. Uh, and that is why we move forward on bringing in uh, these agreements.
Yeah, still not buying it. I know. I was just waiting. I thought maybe today would be different. And I don't know why I thought that, but I just thought maybe today after this damning report, the response would be different, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be. Another question has to do with the Privy Council clerk. And remember, he testified uh, during those hearings that the Justice Committee had that he didn't think that any of this was improper. You're talking about somebody who's very powerful, right, in a position uh, that looks after all the bureaucrats in government. And there he was testifying, saying that he didn't think anything was wrong. And so now, in light of the Ethics Commissioner's report, the Prime Minister was also asked, did your privy clerk behave appropriately? Uh, in, in today's report, uh, Mr. Dion points out that he was unable to fully complete his investigative mandate uh, because he was impeded in getting information, uh, cabinet confidences, by the privy clerk, uh, which he really makes no bones about. It was, it was a tremendous stumbling block to, to reach his, his, the end of his uh, investigation. I mean, do you think that's an appropriate action uh, by the privy clerk's office, and what will you, if anything, do about it? Uh, the um, cabinet confidentiality and attorney-client privilege, solicitor-client privilege, are uh, two of the uh, fundamental elements that uphold our democracy and our system of government. So it was not a small thing for our government to decide to waive both solicitor-client privilege and, uh, and uh, cabinet confidence in the matter uh, being studied both by the committee and by the ethics commissioner. We took that decision because we knew that it was important uh, that uh, Canadians and obviously the Ethics Commissioner would be able to uh, access all information and hear all testimony in regards to the matter at hand. Uh, we did exactly that. Uh, and that is why we were able to have such fulsome parliamentary study and uh, such a uh, fulsome uh, Ethics Commissioner's report. Uh, the decision uh, by the uh, Privy Council to not further extend into uh, less relevant or non-relevant uh, elements of cabinet confidentiality and solicitor-client privilege uh, is an important one that maintains the integrity of our institutions and our capacity to function as a government without setting uh, troublesome or worrisome precedents. It's almost like I could hear the wheels turning during that, right? Like carefully stepping around some landmines there. Now, Trudeau was also asked by Global News about whether the deferred prosecution agreement is still even a possibility for SNC-Lavalin. And his answer suggests that maybe he is seeing things a little bit differently now. Can you say whether a DPA is still on the table? Uh, that is a decision uh, to be made by uh, the Attorney General and Minister of Justice, uh, not a decision uh, for the Prime Minister to make. Yeah, you might have wanted to say that repeatedly a year ago. All of this could have been avoided. Uh, so anyway, we're going to have more on this. Uh, they've just wrapped up that uh, press conference, but no apology. Lots of I take full responsibility, but no really clear indications of what that means. Taking responsibility means recognizing that uh, what we did over the past year uh, wasn't good enough. But at the same time, I can't apologize for standing up for Canadian jobs. And that baffles me, that quote right there. It's not that it wasn't good enough, it's that it wasn't good what you did over the last year. And is, 
When you say taking full responsibility, does that really mean that you fully understand what has happened? We want to break this all down today with somebody who has seen this before. I'm sure time and time again, Keith Baldry joins us now, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Now, you've seen your fair share of these Mia Culpa press conferences. How do you rate this one? Well, I'm not surprised by what Mr. Joe had to say. I mean, he's sort of been halfway defiant on this issue from day one, that he, he sees nothing wrong for a prime minister to uh, talk to an attorney general about a case like this, that it's uh, you can't separate the two uh, completely, that uh, there's political um, connotations to all these things, and that the PMO was in its rights to at least canvas the topic with her. But it's uh, he'll go as far as to say sort of a mea culpa um, admitting that he did things wrong on other aspects of this, but he remains defiant on a key aspect of this, saying he still thinks that was about protecting jobs rather than improperly interfering with, uh, with the AG. So I don't think much has changed other than you've got now an independent ruling from an ethics watchdog that uh, he was in violation of the conflict of interest or section 9 of the ethics code and that is unprecedented and now it carries with it no specific penalty or anything like that and it's interesting uh, talking to Jagmeet Singh over here today, he was in Victoria at an event and listening to Andrew Shear both of course not surprisingly harshly condemning yeah. the Prime Minister but both stopping well short of demanding his resignation, just saying that he's in he shouldn't be prime minister, but leaving it to the people to decide in the election campaign, which tells me they think this is now a gift to hang around Trudeau's neck day in and day out come the campaign. SNC-Lavalin proved to be a tremendous drag on the Liberals' fortunes when this first broke in the spring, uh, and it continues to do so for weeks. The Liberals have recovered since then in poll after poll, basically neck and neck with the Conservatives, and ahead of them in the riding critically riding rich provinces of Ontario and Quebec, where SNC-Lavalin might play a little differently than it does out mm-hmm. in D.C. or the Prairie. So I think that he caught a bit, of a, a bit of a break. It landed in the middle of August, and a lot of people aren't paying attention to politics. So it's a challenge for the Conservatives and the NDP to bring this issue back with a vengeance come the fall. They've got a nice little thing, a nice little gift wrap bow uh, from yeah. uh, the Ethics Commissioner here, and we'll see if they can sustain it as an issue that proves to be as uh, destructive to the Liberal brand as it was in the spring. That's what I'm wondering. Like, is this really the albatross though that they think it is? Because as you pointed out, like, we have been now dealing with this since February the 8th when that original Global Mail article dropped. Mm-hmm. Don't you think people's opinion of this has already solidified somewhat? Yeah, I think to a, a significant degree it has. And I also think as we get closer to an election, elections are about choices. And if you don't like one, well, you've got to choose something else if you're going to vote. So the question is, is this enough of an issue that in the spring proved to push people away from Trudeau and the Liberals into other parties' camps? Well, now the, the stakes are considerably higher. I mean, that was just a, a, an opinion back in the spring. Now it's an actual vote. So will people actually view this issue as something to say, I've had it with Trudeau and the Liberals, I'm voting conservative or NDP or green, or is this issue sort of peaked in the spring and it doesn't necessarily rise up to the level right. it was back then just because there's a an ethics commissioner report that a lot of people I think had forgotten about that this thing was even out there. Right. But again, it's an, it's a challenge for the concert, for any opposition party uh, in an election to keep scandals alive. Sometimes scandal. I've covered a lot of governments who've been beset by scandals, and you'd think uh, listening to people, well, that might, must mean they're done. And those governments, those parties, yeah. keep getting reelected because other issues, whether in this campaign, is it climate change, is it environmental 
environmental protection? Is it economic issues? Are those the ones that are vote determinant? Are those the, the pressing issues of, of Canadians? Or is it going to be ethics and SNC-Lavalin and Mr. Trudeau's uh, perceived transgressions? I don't think anybody really has a firm grip on that yet. I also got a sense, too, of what we're going to be hearing a lot about, at least from the Liberals during the election, is hammering away at what's going on in Ontario. Clearly, yeah. Ontario is their hope, right? A very unpopular conservative government there. He even referenced it a couple of times in his opening remarks. Is that a preview? Oh, yeah. I think they're going to use Doug Ford as much as they can uh, in Ontario because uh, that's proved to be rich fodder for them in terms of uh, sort of besting the Conservatives who are going to be twinned to Mr. Ford over and over again by the Liberals, which gives them an edge in an incredibly important number of ridings around Metro Toronto. And that's, uh, that's where the election is going to be decided, along with Quebec, where, again, the Liberals have an edge there, where SNC-Lavalin is seen completely different in Quebec. This was about protecting Quebec jobs, and I think uh, Trudeau wins that issue in that province, which is one reason why he's leading the polls there right. as well. So I don't see this necessarily as determining the outcome of the next election, but it's a challenge for Trudeau to be able to put this behind him and get people to talk about other issues rather than ethical lapses being found by an independent right. watchdog. You make a really good point then. So once again, you know, if we translate this, it really is kind of like a Western Canadian thing versus how Central Canada and Atlantic Canada sees this. Well, yeah, and, but it's, it's up to Mr. It's a challenge for Mr. Shear and Mr. Singh to turn this into a, a national referendum, the next election. And clearly, they seem to signal this in their in their, talk, their remarks today in response to these findings, turning the election into a referendum on Mr. Trudeau's ethics or, in their view, right. their lack of ethics and making that the issue in the campaign rather than jobs, uh, climate plans, uh, climate action plans, which has very much been the talk in recent uh, mm -hmm. weeks since the SNC-Lavalin sort of faded from into the background. Everybody's been talking about climate action plans. And uh, is that going to be, are the parties going to go back to f stressing that in the in the upcoming campaign? Elizabeth May has signaled that's, that's her issue. That's all she wants to talk about. And we'll see if Jagmeet Singh, in his effort to basically hold on what he's got, he just wants to hold his seats and maybe grow yeah. a little bit. Does that mean talking about issues that are more, traditionally more important to Democrats, which is, you know, good union jobs and climate. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. But action, taking strong action on fighting climate change. I have a feeling those issues will still rise to the fore over this one. All right, Keith, thank you. All right, take care. That's Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Well, there is other news going on out there today, so now let us turn our attention to some of that. You may have heard a bit about this next story. It's certainly got our attention. It's about David Dennis, a 44-year-old First Nations man who is currently in the end stages of liver disease. He desperately needs a liver transplant. The problem is, BC transplant rules say people who are alcoholics have to have abstained for six months prior to getting on the list in order for that transplant to be as successful as possible. Well, David Dennis has about three months under his belt, but his time is running out. David and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs believe, though, that he should get special consideration. So they have filed a complaint at the Human Rights Tribunal. They believe that BC transplant's abstinence policy is racism. 
Now, we're going to talk more about that in a few minutes, but we wanted to tell David Dennis's complete story first. So our CKNW contributor, Claire Allen, spoke with him about when and why he started drinking. Well, I guess I've always known I've had a problem with uh, drinking. It ran in multiple generations of my family since uh, residential school. Every one of my parents, brothers, and sisters have had uh, an alcohol problem of some sort. I was a functional alcoholic up until about three years ago, which means basically means like I was always kind of a binge drinker. So it would be twice a month I'd go on a you know like a Friday night and a Saturday, you know, up until dinner time type of thing. In 2016, on uh, November 11th, I got uh, whapped in the back of the head protecting a woman from a domestic violence situation. And uh, I went unconscious and I developed a, uh, they confirmed that I have post-concussion syndrome. And one of the main issues of uh, post-concussion syndrome is that you get uh, wild migraines and uh, and bad hallucinations. And to deal with the fear, I began to, uh, my binge drinking increased and increased and increased. That is David Dennis, and as mentioned, he is in desperate need of a liver transplant. But he's no longer on the wait list because he hasn't met the requirements of the abstinence policy. He has managed to stay sober for three months, but in order to get that transplant, BC Transplant says that a recipient must abstain for six months from drinking alcohol. So yesterday, as I mentioned, David, along with the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, filed a formal complaint at the BC Human Rights Tribunal. They're challenging the lawfulness of the abstinence policy. And in their release, David and the Union of BC Indian Chiefs say that the required abstinence policy is, quote, a lethal form of racism. We wanted to explore more about that. So in a conversation with Claire Allen, he explained why he believes this policy is discriminatory. I guess the best way to answer that, and I've been answering it all morning like that, to say, let's say that you have a pool of all different races, and let's just for the simplicity of it say it's red, yellow, white, and black. And each people are swimming in a pool together. And uh, throughout the course of time that they're in there, there's one particular group that uh, uh, has suffered from rape and theft of land and colonization and uh, decades of sexual abuse, both within the church and within the foster care system, and had poor uh, health care services to begin with. Um, approaches somebody who can make an arbitrary decision like that. We feel that uh, the folks that do come out of the pool are affected by alcoholism way more than the other folks that come out of the pool. But the fact is, is that uh, one of the questions we're trying to find out is how many people of those people have been kicked off as far as First Nations. And if the answer is uh, as simple as 50% more or 100% more, then we know that there's uh, some form of discrimination that, that seems to be involved in an arbitrary level at the uh, boots on the ground level, right? I.e., head of medicine, head of internal, that kind of thing, right? 
I'm wondering what yeah. you would say to the criticism that is out there that the abstinence policy is across the board for any um, recipient of a liver transplant, that they're saying you Correct. must be sober for six months. And the fear is, is that if you were to get a liver and, to con and if you continued drinking, you might be taking away that healthy liver for someone that may not abuse it through alcohol abuse. What is your response to that criticism against what you are saying? Uh, I guess... Uh I guess I would be satisfied with that argument if we had a, a really good legal grasp on when did that policy come into place and what type of um, what type of calculation the mathematics behind it came up with the number of six months. Um, and I know there are folks who are going to be immediately skeptical because, let's face it, they know we live in a society that despite uh, despite what we want to think about ourselves as British Columbians and Canadians, uh, we, we do discriminate. I do really believe that there are truly some people with the power of a stroke of a pen that can easily look into this issue and start to say, hey, you know what, there's some merit behind this argument, let's get working on it. You know, is six months a fair waiting period for people who we, as a country, as a province, have uh, sent off to residential school and basically destroyed lives, right? And uh, is there a number that, that we can we can begin with, right? Not that that really takes uh, dialogue. But David, do you think that allowing Indigenous and First Nations people to be exempt from the six-month abstinence policy because of trauma would ultimately open Pandora's box and allow for other individuals? to use their own trauma as a way to not adhere to the abstinence policy? Uh, well, I guess the, the way that, that I'll answer that is by saying that um, from the outset of our, of our interview, I uh, revealed to you that every single person in my family uh, is deeply, deeply affected by residential school. And for those people who haven't uh, up to date, I would say that argument might uh, hold a lot more merit with uh, way more people in 2019 or uh, you know 1989 rather than 2019. Those are old views, or those are views that we believe are dying. Um, we know that any time that we've brought this issue before medical professionals, they've almost unanimously said that, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really arbitrary number and it uh, needs to be changed. That is David Dennis talking about his fight to get himself onto the transplant list for a new liver. He's only been three months sober, whereas the abstinence policy requires six months of sobriety before he's put on the list. He is now challenging that with the help of the BC Union of Indian Chiefs in court. They're calling it a lethal form of racism. He also said that if given the chance to get a liver transplant, he would stay sober even after the transplant. He was also asked like, what he hopes will be the result of his human rights complaint. And here's what he said. 
So I, I think it it begins with a sit down with with Adrian Dix and, and possibly the premier. Um, it's happened before, you know, in situations like this where people are in dire situations. We make exceptions all all of the time in consideration of making monumental changes, and I think that this would demonstrate and be an honor to all First Nations people that the greater community takes this issue seriously enough to to get it moved along quickly, right? Right, and on a personal note, I know that you also are hoping that that something is done because I know you have a a five-year-old daughter, is that correct? Five-and-a-half-year-old daughter, yeah. And obviously you'd like to be there for her in the future. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, been, that's been the most difficult part. Isabella has been a, a shining light in my life. And um, it's been the hardest thing for, for this family is for to watch how she's contending with the issue. She just doesn't understand yet, you know. And I hate to be the parent that has to be there and know, like, daddy's daddy's not come home. Oh, man, this is a heartbreaking story. That is 44-year-old David Dennis. He's a First Nations man currently in the end stages of liver disease. He really desperately needs a liver transplant. But under BC Transplant's abstinence policy, he doesn't yet qualify to be on the list because he's only been three months sober. They require six months of sobriety in order, under their rules, for the transplant to have the greatest chance of success. He is now fighting it, along with the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. They believe that the trauma that First Nations people have gone through uh, means that 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 six-month policy is arbitrary and that they should be given, you know, consideration for that. Now, this is tough. I know it's heartbreaking, right? You don't ever want to see somebody denied something life-saving like that. But the more I thought about this, I thought, you know, there's lots of trauma in people's lives. There's people who have been sexually abused. There's people, there's lots of reasons why people become alcoholics. There's reasons why they turn to drink to numb themselves. I've seen it myself time and time again. And I guess if you're a BC transplant, you think that's why they put the rules in place. So that it's not about judging whose trauma is worse than somebody else's trauma. It's about this is the best we can do and these are the rules and we're just going to go by those rules because then you're going to start saying your trauma is worse than somebody else's trauma that's what they have to juggle and that is a thankless task like that is a very difficult thing for them to deal with uh, now bc transplant was asked about this they said they are aware of the case their statement says they appreciate the distress that patients and their loved ones face when needing an organ transplant. They said it's a difficult time for all of those involved and that we do everything we can to support patients through the process. The statement goes on to say, while we do not publicly discuss the specific details of individual cases due to patient privacy, we will be reviewing this case together with the liver transplant team at Vancouver Coastal Health. And if there's an update on that, of course, we will have it for you. We'll have more when we come back. If you are a parent in the Surrey School District, this probably is not the news that you want to hear. And especially if you're a student, this is not the news that you want to hear. That yes, there are new schools being built or expanded, 10 of them actually, 
but it also means another 28 portable classrooms are still going to be needed this fall. That is on top of the portables that are already in Surrey. It brings the total number of portables in that district to 361. Why? If all this money is being invested and new schools being built, what is going on in Surrey? Let's talk about that with the help of our next guest, who is Doug Strachan, the Community Services Manager for the Surrey School District. Doug, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Sammy. My pleasure. How much growth is Surrey seeing right now? We expect 1,200 more students this September. And uh, to give some context for that, that's the equivalent of two elementary schools. And that's not unusual. We, we typically get in the neighborhood of 1,000 more or 1,000 additional students each September. So we and that's, you know, maybe not quite to that uh, number, but we've been growing like that for the better part of 30 years. I think Surrey's the, the place for young families, and we're seeing that with uh, the schools and, and the demand for classroom space. Can you even build schools fast enough to accommodate all those students? You know that's a that's a good question. It's a it's a process to build schools, and you know as you were saying, uh, the government has been in, uh, in been the government for two years now, and uh, even if they'd announced uh, everything that's being built, if they announced it that day and got started that day, we'd still not see those schools in time for this September. So it takes a process of, uh, you know, getting the land together, uh, then getting designs done, and of course the construction, and then the permits and occupancy, and loading up those schools full of furniture, etc. So it, it is a process, but the the good news is we expect to see, uh, because these projects are going on right now, uh, about 4,000 or 4,500 more seats when we get into the 2021 school year, and that's going to be the fruits of the labor that and the, and the money that's gone into uh, addressing the issue. Right. So, would you say is this the last year you'd anticipate having this many portables? Uh, next year, we well, we're, we're going to have 500 more seats uh, open up this school year, and uh, about the same in the following school year. But of course, with a thousand more or, or, or more students each year, uh, we may need portables again next year. Um, but when we get to 2021. Uh, and in that school year, as these major projects come online, I, I think there, we've got uh, three elementary, brand new elementary schools, a new secondary school, and a huge addition to one of our uh, secondary schools as well. Uh, when they all open up, I think you'll see that uh, the number starts to go down. Okay, so then when it comes out, what are the busiest areas, Doug? Are there particular neighborhoods that are feeling more of this strain than others? Yes, there are, and that's been pretty consistent over the last uh, five to ten years. Uh, the, the South Surrey area, for sure, and uh, the Clayton area north of Cloverdale, and the, the South Newton area around 64th and uh, 152nd in that neighborhood. So those have been the challenging areas. That's where there's been a lot of uh, developments, townhomes and uh, residential, single-family residential developments going on. And again, you know, that reflects the demand of, uh, of young families looking for a place that's relatively affordable and uh, with the amenities of, that Surrey offers in the way of parks and uh, recreational facilities. So it's an attractive place to live, and uh, we're just trying to make sure we keep up. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, have we learned our lesson here with this, that we let it go for too long and it just got beyond what we could handle? So is there going to be constant updating and planning? 
Well, you know, I think we did get behind. Certainly our board was uh, uh, telling that to the government of the day a number of years ago when there were several years without any uh, announcements of uh, uh, capital being uh, spent to, to build additions in schools. So that, that does put you a bit behind. Uh, but one of the things that did come uh, from that time is the Capital Project Office, which is a coordinated effort between the city, the, the district, and the Ministry of Education to streamline and remove barriers, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, the permitting process, inspection process, uh, uh, zoning, and so forth, to, to speed, expedite the process along, and including the, the capital uh, expenditures and all those things that go into it. So we're seeing some benefits, some results of that, and it is helping to make things go more quickly. So then can you foresee a time here, Doug, when when people talk about Surrey schools, they won't talk about all the portables that students are in? <laughs> well, uh, you know, there, first of all, there will always be portables because uh, whether it's uh, repairs being done to a school, whether it's seismic upgrades, uh, uh, and, and it makes sense to use portables when you see the school starting to uh, get to uh, capacity uh, while the school is being built nearby or the school is being replaced. So there's always a need, a practical need for portables, but certainly in the numbers that we're seeing, uh, I expect that we'll see that, uh, especially if the government continues the rate that it's investing in our infrastructure here, that we'll see that number go steadily down after the next couple of years. So just a little bit more patience and for parents, because I can imagine that, you know, for some kids, they've gone all all the way through their school career in a portable. It's it's possible. I don't know that that's actually happened, um, but it, it is it, definitely there's uh, compromises with portables, and, and you know even walking to the school and back if in the foul weather and so forth, the learning quality is the same whether they're in the portables or in the school because the teachers and and the support staff and the, and the EAs and the like are still there, but uh, yeah, it's a compromise uh, in in how crowded the school is and and the space taken by the portables needed by the portables but they're temporary and uh, we're starting to see some progress to actually start to bring that total number down all right fingers crossed doug thank you so much for your time thank you Simi. appreciate that that is doug strachan the community services manager communication services manager for the surrey school district a lot of headlines about this story today saying that you know surrey's going to need another 28 portable classrooms this fall and that is uh, on top of the that'll bring the total number of portables in the surrey school district to 361 which is a crazy number uh and you wonder well wait a minute what about all the new things that are going on which they're just not built yet they are still not there when all of this stuff has come online. There are 10 new schools being built or expanded. But as you heard Doug Strachan just explain, in the next two years, they expect that in the fall of 2021, conveniently an election year, uh, there will be finally a huge dent made. What did he say? 4,500 uh, new school student spaces that will be opening up by that time that should make a huge dent in the number of portables that they have. But still pretty frustrating for parents out there. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. We'll be hearing more about what you have to say when we come back. All right. So 
no loser today. I think we've all had a bit of a tough day when it comes to politics and dealing with all of that. So there's plenty of political losers out there. You can pick your own. But for our winner, we love this story. We're going to say that Alan Frew and, of course, that classic 1980s band Glass Tiger, they are our winners of the day. This video is so adorable. They surprised one of their biggest fans with an impromptu serenade at an Alberta senior's home. This is staff at the Pleasant View Lodge in Marathorpe, Alberta. The band Glass Tiger stopped by after learning that 95-year-old Gene Savage regularly listened to a CD of their music. And so lead singer Alan Frew posted a video of all of this on his Facebook page. So he is singing their classic song, Someday, right in front of their 95-year-old fan. Have a listen. And our producer, Claire Allen, after she cut that, she told me that she had that song stuck in her head. That was it. She was done for the day after that. First of all, they sound fabulous. Don't they? Right? I I wish I was there. This woman's sitting in her wheelchair. She's clapping. And I'm thinking, hello, I would like to be right next to her. (laughs) Right? Maybe they'll come visit us one day in the nursing home or some other band. You know, the invitation is extended. Anytime (laughs) Glass Tiger wants to come and play in the CKNW studio, bring it on.